As a kid, I was never fully aware of current events going on around me. Part of that we could blame on the American education system, but mostly it's because I was a dreamer. I was a kid who would rather bury myself in books than contemplate the current state of affairs in the world around me. Binging on MASH gave me some awareness of the Korean War and the Vietnam War. But beyond that, well, there is one thing. The only reason I knew about the Iron Curtain is because I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 80s. That's where watching Steelers every Sunday is pretty much a religion. I remember being told about the Iron Curtain in school and being so confused. Didn't they know it's not an Iron Curtain, it's a Steel Curtain? I could not figure out for the life of me what the Soviet Union had to do with my beloved Steelers. Age has improved my awareness of current events. John Sullivan's story is a prime example of that. His brushes with history were a complete eye-opener for me. John joined the Army just after Vietnam War ended. It was in the early days of the all-volunteer Army. I was, had decided to enlist in the Army. I was living in central Minnesota and uh, walked into the recruiter recruitment office, had no idea what I wanted to do or what was possible, and he said, hey, you want to go to Monterey and learn a language? I said, what language? If you want to choose the language, we have Russian and Chinese available, uh, but you got to enlist for four years. So I said, okay, I'll do the four years. I want to do Russian. I had read a lot of Russian literature, novels, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, etc., and I wanted to be able to read one in the original language. So that that's what made my decision on which language to study. For John, it worked out that he got Russian. He resonated with the language. What I found with Russian was once you got over the new alphabet, which took a while, um, that it was a very phonetic language. It's, I mean, I, I, I have friends who have studied Polish, and Polish, you've got marbles in your mouth, and it's very difficult to pronounce, but... Russian really follows some very phonetic rules, and uh, it's a fairly straightforward language. I've, I actually found it over time to be, you know, one of the easier languages that I've studied. After more training at Goodfellow Air Force Base, John was sent to Germany, a move he says he was very fortunate to get. Actually got to listen to Russian uh, every day um, for the two years I was in uh, Augsburg. I was in a, in a position that was mostly targeting Czechoslovakia, the, both the Soviet troops and the Czech troops there. I was, I got to a position where it was almost 90% of what I was hearing was Czech. So I decided either I'm going to go crazy uh, just listening to something I don't understand or I'm going to learn this. So I ordered the books and the tapes from DLI uh, to learn Czech and taught myself Czech over in Germany, and I didn't go crazy. <laughs> so, The Cold War was alive and well at that time, and the Soviets wanted the Americans to know it. I was at a field station in, in Augsburg, Germany, for two years, and um, all of us would get a group Christmas card every year. With all of our names, and our social uh, security numbers mm -hmm. from the KGB. And that was before social media. After his tour ended in Germany in 1979, John had nine months left in his enlistment. It was a very full 36 weeks. 
at the end of that two-year tour, I was uh, reassigned to the 375th ASA company at Fort Hood. Almost the entire time, I don't recall being there for more than a month, but I was TDY the whole time. For his first TDY, John was sent to Key West. I know, you're super sympathetic to his troubles. Just wait. In 1979, there was a scare known as the Soviet Brigades. It was discovered that the Soviets had a brigade in Cuba and looked like they were amassing more troops. They assigned me for most of the winter to a naval air station in Key West, um, where I was tasked to intercept radio communications of a, a Soviet brigade in Cuba. So we were getting up in an, in an old, you know, the kind of planes the, the ASA used in Vietnam. I think they were Cessna RU-8Ds or something like that with all the radio equipment. We'd go up and um, we'd listen to hear what we could hear. And there was a Spanish linguist sitting next to me in the little plane, and we did that every day for a couple months, as I recall, uh, in 79. As it turns out, the Soviets had been in Cuba since the 1960s. In fact, going into the 70s, the word brigade had been overheard in a transmission and had been reported to the intelligence agencies. But the United States had been embroiled in the Vietnam War at that time, so it wasn't a priority at all. In 1979, because of Cuban and possibly Soviet influence in what was going on in the Western Hemisphere, the United States stepped up their surveillance of Cuba. And that gave them more specific information that there was brigade movement of Soviet troops in Cuba. So basically, what started out to be a big deal ended up deflating somewhat, but it didn't really help the tensions between the United States and the USSR. I think the reason we were sent down there on a very rush basis was that it had been discovered that there was actually a full brigade, you know, not just a few advisors, but a full brigade. And and there was some confusion and concern about, well, what are they up to? And there were different theories. I mean, in those days, don't forget, a lot of Cuba's military were deployed overseas in various troublemaking spots like Angola and Nicaragua and uh, all of those sort of places where Cubans and the Soviets were trying to advance their interests in third world uh, countries. And of course, the Cubans were uh, tasked with that. And the thinking was that maybe the Soviets were in Cuba to make sure that the civilian population there stayed pacified. But beyond that, I, you know, it was above my pay grade, as they say. John Sullivan's time as a linguist had him brushing up against some big events in history. His last few months in the military were about to be his biggest yet. In December of 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. My final assignments were to field stations in Okinawa and in at Misawa in northern Japan. And um, that was in the spring of 1980, I think it was for a few months. Uh, and we were able to intercept the uh, Soviet communications when they first invaded Afghanistan. So. Um, that was a very unusual um, opportunity to actually do my job and be intercepting uh, live combat. You can't get away from history here. 
Afghanistan had been unstable for centuries, thanks to country after country after country trying to take over. Not to mention the religious and tribal infighting. Suffice it to say, that invasion set off a whole bunch of actions that led to where we are now with Operation Enduring Freedom. And John? He got to listen in on history as it was unfolding, playing his behind-the-scenes part of the U.S. military linguist. I remember that there was immediate interest in getting somebody over there to, you know, listen to this stuff. There was a lot of discussion about where to send us. At one point, they thought they might deploy us to um, Oman or even Pakistan, which would have been even closer. But that year, there was sunspot activity. So we were able to pick up the radio on skip as far away as Japan. And there were already two field stations there where we could pick that stuff up. So that's why, that's why they sent us first to Okinawa and then to Misawa. Sunspots can change the ionosphere so that it's possible for signals to be heard from far away, from places that would otherwise be impossible to hear. Once John finished up his tour with the military, he was ready to move on to different things. Turns out, his language was really useful. I was married at the time, and the deal was she'd follow me in the Army, but she got to pick the next four years, and she picked New York City. And my first job was with an admiralty law firm as a paralegal and translator. They represented the Soviet shipping companies and fishing fleets, so I would translate ships' logs and talk to the clients when they were in town and that sort of thing. So, John had one more brush with the Soviet Union, this time two years after his military tour was finished. September 1st, 1983. Yes, I'm approaching the target. I'm going in closer. That's the voice of a Soviet fighter pilot taking aim at the airliner. The plane is carrying 269 people, including at least 22 children and United States Congressman Lawrence McDonald from Georgia. I'm coming before you tonight about the Korean airline massacre the attack by the Soviet Union against 269 innocent men, women, and children aboard an unarmed Korean passenger plane. This crime against humanity must never be forgotten, here or throughout the world. Being in Misawa uh, kind of resonates for me because my best friend in law school, he graduated a year before me, and he was on the Korean airliner that was shot down in 1983. And I knew um, who and where the activity had been intercepted. So, and, I, and I, you know, I knew a little bit about what usually goes on up in that part of the part of the world. But uh, it always makes me think of my friend, and it's kind of sad. Interesting note on history. That international incident was instrumental in the Reagan administration releasing the global positioning system to the world, that is, GPS. As for John Sullivan, his time at DLI and with the rest of his military experience, it helped shape the direction his life took. Finished law school in 1984 and uh, moved out to Seattle. And starting in about 1990, I I had had, of course, a five-year travel restriction when I got out. So my first opportunity to travel to the Soviet Union was with clients in 1990. They were trying to do business over there, doing joint ventures and that sort of work. And I spent three weeks in Moscow and Kiev and 
down in Odessa. And, uh, you know, it had been 10 years since I'd used my Russian on a daily basis, but by the end of the three weeks, it had all come back, and I was helping conduct the business negotiations and meetings in, in Russian, and it was, it really was like riding a bicycle, you know, it, you, you don't lose it, so, and I've had, I've, since then, I've, uh, my law career has, um, not entirely focused, but in, in part has been involved in business uh, transactions over there. I've, I've also traveled in recent years to to Minsk in, in Belarus, and uh, it all started with DLI. <laughs>